welcome to Like a Real Book Club, a podcast from Rebel Women Lit, where we talk about books and just about everything else. I'm Jane. And I'm Christina. And Ashley, unfortunately, isn't here to join us for this interview with Cardella Forbes, who is the author of our May. April. April? April. April? Oh, shit. I don't, I don't know, know what, what month it is. <laughs> April of right. our April April of our April book, um, Tall History of Sugar. We had book club and it was a really interesting book club. We spent a lot of time talking about symbolism and language, and we brought up some of these questions in our interview with Cardella Forbes. And it was really good. I think after listening to this podcast, a lot of people will be interested in reading it or rushing to finish reading it like myself yeah because you haven't finished reading the book but that's great to know so this interview is surprisingly spoiler free <laughs> yeah 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 it is, it is. <laughs> so um, if you haven't read the book you can go ahead and listen to the interview it probably will enrich your experience of the book enjoy Music, music, music. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us. We had book club last weekend, and someone said that it felt like it's a type of book that your literature teacher wants to write. I was just about to say that this is the perfect this is this <laughs> is the perfect book to have in a Cape literature class. It's the perfect book to have because I I can already see us in class spending hours on perhaps one page. Uh, so, Cardella, could you tell us about the book and the inspiration for writing it and how long did you know that you wanted to write this story? Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am dying of laughter <laughs> when you said that. You know, it's the kind of book your literature teacher would, would want you to write um, because... Um, so often when I do interviews, I think, oh, my God, I'm being asked to to talk about the book. I like a, a reader reading it, like a critic. And um, I, I say to myself, I hope I'm not making up the book as a new book as I go along <laughs> answering this type of question. So well, thank you so much. I, I'm really very appreciative of being here. And I, I hope I won't sound too much like the literature teacher that I am. I, I try to change my my profile. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I've been trying all my life to to change that, you know. Um, so I no longer speak, speak of myself as a as a teacher who writes, but as a writer who teaches. Um, yeah, but anyway, I try not to sound like the, the teacher who <laughs> writes. Yeah, the inspiration for the book. Um, I started writing this book actually in, um, I think it was in 2014. And um, I wrote it in, you know, small pieces. 
20 minute pieces actually in every morning I get up to, to do my classes prep and grade papers and um, it was sort of very frustrating because I've always thought that I need two different kinds of space to teach and to write so I used to leave most of my writing for the summers until I couldn't do it anymore and then I discovered that I could actually make a kind of capsule of time and um, just sit in it for 20 minutes at two o'clock in the mornings and write pieces. Um, so it took me a while. I finished it in 2018. And um, it, it, so it was simmering for a while. And um, I'm, I've answered that this question of the inspiration of it so many times. I don't know if I can say it in a fresh way. But there were two things in my mind constantly. I, I've lived in the United States since 2003. I, I'm a, US, a dual citizen now, what they call a Jamaican. And, you know, when you come from the Caribbean to the U.S., there's always a shock in many ways, even though you think you know a lot about U.S. society. But one of the things that really hits you in the face in a completely different kind of way is this thing of race. And I found myself increasingly getting a rage in my head because race colors everything. And I said, well, okay, all right, okay. Suppose one day somebody was born whose race you couldn't tell. What the heck then? What would you do? And that, that, so, so that was something I wanted to explore. It's kind of funny because he never really comes to the U.S. in the book. And um, I found that in the end I had to start with Jamaica. And, you know, where you don't have that kind of racial situation in quite that way at all. Um, so so that, that it went in the direction I hadn't expected, but which it demanded to go. That it, that it was, you know, Jamaica had to wrestle with that. And Jamaica, you know, which becomes a kind of, you know, contradiction because there's a way in which there's a larger expansiveness, you know, about this sort of thing, especially in the rural areas. And then um, I, I always said to myself, you know, I, I want to write a book that, you know, I would like to write, read that has everything I like to read in books. The fairy tale, I like reading. I still read children's books. All the fairy tales I read as a child, I read them now. Didn't realize they were so racist until I started reading them. And I also... Um, so I, I the, the Roma, you know, romance, a love story, and so on, you know. But the, the fairy tale thing intrigued me a lot because I've always, in all my writing, pushed against the boundaries that are supposed to be between naturalistic, logical, you know, realism and what people call um, mythic. And I've, you know, because I feel that it's not really true to the reality that I know. And I, I, I think I call the book a fairy tale, but it's really just a, a way of speaking about the, the, the sort of seamlessness between what some people see as a mythic and or the spiritual and the everyday, which, you know, it doesn't sort of exist for us, at least not the way I grew up, that, that sort of refusal of those easy boundaries. And, and I've always thought fairy tales are anyway just another history. It's a history that the ordinary people tell, the one that didn't get in the books, 
you know, they, they, that's, that's really just another view of things. You know, the, 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 the music from the lower frequencies, James Borden would call it. So, so I, I, it sort of, the book sort of brought together a lot of things that have been mulling in my mind. And, and certainly the kind of style I use is not new. It's a different variation on things I've done in my previous work. Yeah, but, but Moshe was born out of this thing of, you know, I really, really, you know, I'm bothered. I have a rage in my head about this race thing. <laughs> and I I want to see where that leads. And I write very much out of a Jamaican, rural Jamaican sensibility that I wanted to place him within. You know, that sort of answers it a bit. Uh, it's actually very funny or interesting that you brought up um, naturalist and fairy tale because we wanted to find out um, how important it was for you to write the spiritual aspects of the book the way that you did because we found that the sort of seamless melding of the spiritual world with reality um, was it, it's exactly how Jamaicans live our lives. We we um, it's infused in the way that we perceive the world, in the way that we perceive um, any sort of happenings in our lives. So talk to us a little bit about why it was important for you to write spirituality in that way. Um, thank you for that. You're my you're my ideal reader, just because you say that. <laughs> because you're perfectly right. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you're perfectly right. That is that is just how you know it's a Jamaican way of being, it's a Jamaican sensibility. You know, we you know, my mother dreamed me last night, you know, though she's been has passed on years ago and we take that totally and and accept it um it's also very much I, I think about it a lot in our whole history you know yeah so we talk about the, the whole colonial history the book is a lot about that but but you know it's not about just these historical facts that you find in the books it's also about the fact that when jamaica is a very revolutionary place historically we were always fighting we made slavery so ungovernable they, they gave up you know and but we never had an uprising that didn't have a spiritualist element you know people called upon their gods or they called upon the christian god whoever when they went to when they fought you know you look at sam sharp and all those guys you know we 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 it's just the way we think um the the veil between who has passed on and who is still here is a pretty thin one and there's a funny kind of way in which, you know, people say, oh, mainstream Christianity is very different from the, the heart of the country. But most Jamaicans, when I was growing up, they grew up on King James Version. So they, they were always expecting an angel to appear, you know, that kind of thing. You know, my spirit not take him, you know, is a way of saying that, you know, you can even discern yes. whether a person <laughs> is a good kind of person yes. for you to to relate to you see anybody who dog not like that kind of thing you know is like a good person you know that's that's how we do it you know so it felt totally natural to me so there's a way in which they are just saying fairy tale is a kind of metaphor in a way when i say it's a fairy tale because i'm not you know you know i, I used to love fairy tales growing up 
I, you know, as a child, I read every one of them. Uh, you know, I read the Andrew Lang Yellow Fairy book, Blue Fairy book, also the Color Fairy book. I read the the, um, the Grimm's Fairy Tales, all of the and Hans Andersons, and I think that always seems seems to me. I think, but they're always is all, they sound in so so much like the kinds of ways, though very different. My granduncle told us stories. I learned to tell stories from him. He was a master storyteller. He was a man who didn't go to school. Um, but, you know, couldn't read all right. But he, his art was amazing. We used to love when he came to stay with us because he would tell us these stories about Hoopin Boy and Wolver Mumma and Rolling Calf, and he was always at the center of these stories. He would meet them at midnight on crossroads and take, seek his knife in the road and, they, and couldn't pass. And I used to believe him. He's now looking at me and I say he probably made them all up. <laughs> it felt so real, you know, and it just struck me that this we tell the story with the spiritual dimension because that is part of who we are. I think it's how we survive the hell of the, that whole colonial and slave experience. We carried a lot of that over. I think it's a part of people that you can't take away. And we have sort of, you know, people who have been stripped of everything as we were during that history, you know, hold fiercely to that. It's what carries us over. And so we we understand that, you know, there's always this other history that is not written in, in you know, in 1492 Columbus or in, you know, in 1865 Sam Sharp. But that history that, that Sam Sharp carried, you know, was part of that spirituality, you know. So, so it's just us, you know, it, it's just... You know, it might seem like a fairy tale. Marcus said said something like that in his Nobel Prize lecture. You know, he's Colombian, but he always thought he was Caribbean because he grew up on the Caribbean coast. And I, and I mentioned Marcus because he had so much to do with giving me the freedom to write the way I write. He said that, you know, we don't, um, our trouble has, our solitude, and, and he's talking about getting our literature understood, has always, the problem of it has always been that, you know, to find a language to talk about our everyday reality. And so people call what he writes magic realism. But but for us it feels totally normal. Yeah, so so it's a it's a fairy tale that is very much a completely, I think, very historically um accurate that in my view. <laughs> Yeah, echoing so much of what we brought up in our last, I think it was the last two episodes yes. about. <laughs> I'm actually the trying to contain myself. The spirit tech. <laughs> and how we, because we were in the middle of reading the book at that time when we recorded that, and it kept on bothering me that people would call the book magical realism because for me, there is no boundary between our spiritual world and our spiritual understanding and the physical naturalist world that we have. So I am geeking out right now. Thank you so much for writing this book. And I realize the hundred years of solitude references that were made with uh, was Noah who kept on referring to the book. So thank you so much. And it, and you bring out something very interesting to me when you talk about the history and the alternate 
alternate history, or would I say another view of history? Because a lot of our understanding of history tends to be one-dimensional. It tends to almost always be political and not a very personal telling of what the history is. And I'm curious about how you talk about, well, the history of sugar, but also not just sugar, as I think for me as well, I thought it would have just been a very clear slavery, colonialism, independence, Jamaica, but you bring out sugar in a way of what it means for the person and the body. And we see that with Ari, with every time there is sugar burnings in in her community, it affects her physically. We see that with Moshe, who's allergic to it. We see that with uh, the history of diabetes. We see it with Yui being on a sugar plantation. So I'm very curious, and I guess this is more of a literature class type question about the symbolism of how do we tell our history through sugar and what were some of the ideas that you had with using sugar as the symbol for telling our history? Thank you. Yes, um, that's wonderful, really. Um, yeah, the, um, oh, why sugar? It's, it's funny that part where you said, um, you know, it's it, it's about the history, but but very much about how it affects persons. Um, part of that, one of the things that I tried to do was not to let the history overwhelm the personal story. So you can't, you know, the, the, so the history is very much a context in which you could understand people like or characters like Moshe and Ariane, but they are center stage, and um, I I really dislike ideological writing for myself personally. I don't want to write a story where people can say, oh yeah, you know, and and they focus just on the politics. The politics is important, but I wanted my characters to live like real people because I think that it's real, you know, quote unquote real, of course, because it was fiction, you know, people who make the history happen. I wanted it to, I wanted my readers to feel Moshe and Aryan on their pulses. You know, like, you know, they could have been in the next room or beside them, that kind of way. Um, but um, I think what um, I hope I achieved that, if I did, I think what helped me, would have helped me, was um, just my own experience growing up in rural Jamaica. And I was born just a few years before independence, at about the same time when Aryan would have been born. So I, I lived that in many ways, though obviously not in the ways they did. But I am I am always struck by, I suspect that I'm not answering the question in the right way, but I'm just going to tell you what, what is coming to my mind, you know. And so it might not end up being the literature class, but the crazy writer. <laughs> um yeah, I, I, I've always, how shall I put it now? Yeah, I, I'm struck by the fact that I hear people saying, oh, you shouldn't, you know, write about that sort of thing anymore because we've passed beyond that. There are other concerns. But I, Jamaica is less than 60 years old. Um, in the life of a human being, that's no time at all. In the life of a country, it's almost non-existent. It's a very short window it's a it's a it's a dust mote in the air of time 
and um, we have not even got to the end of the third and fourth generation from that experience. Um, just like I, you know, in the United States, there are people who were who are just because were grandparents who went through Jim Crow, still living. Um, so that is very much in people's, you know, in the DNA, and and it's not just black people who have not recovered from slavery or colonialism. I tell my students here that, you know, why people haven't recovered either. That's why we have a race problem in the USA. And um, I think about, I thought about the multi multiple ways in which this history of sugar affects people, that there's no one dimension to it. There are so many different kinds of people. You get somebody, you know, get people who have become Afro-Saxon, you know, like Amor Blackweight said. So they, you know, they live in this mental in-between space where, you know, the snow is always falling on the cane fields. You know, snow can't fall on cane fields. <laughs> you get people who become serious activists as a result. The whole thing is on our pulses, you know. And um, because there's insurrection in your whole body, the way there was insurrection in, in, in Ariane. And it just struck me, you know, I was just thinking as I'm talking about it now that Ariane's family is a very insurrecting family there. You know, even the ones who come with a bare fierceness to feel up the child to see if she really is a member of the Christie clan, that kind of, you know, constant refusal. You know, you get people like Moshe who look for apotheosis. They want a place of belonging where they don't have to deal with it. So he can't even eat the sugar, you know. And um, so they, they want, and that's why he draws, you know, you know, I think there's a part in the book where I say that he, he like he's wrestling something down to the demonia, ground some spiritual dimension to make sense of it. You know, he draws somewhere with with comets streaming out of his hair, and that's different from people who migrate. You know, they're looking for another a space somehow to put their foot with on the shifting sand on the earth, and you get somebody like Moshe who can't, you know, he, he's gone to another stratosphere. So you get a whole lot of, you know, there's so many, there's no one way, you know, in which people um, show the, the, the continuing, you know, result of this in our DNA, you know, in one way or another. And um, so there's a way to miss those physical manifestations are, you know, you know, are sort of symbolic of that. You get Noah, who the thing has healed. You know, he's found his own peace. But it's like a phantom limb. You know, you it, it, where the, the, the hand got chopped off, you still feel it when the weather changes. You know, like it's you know those you know dopey traces. <laughs> you know, still still remain there. And um, you, you you can see you saw that it in the in the way I sort of talk about the institutions. The, the education is serious. I really really always wanted to talk about that sexual aspect, which I don't find people talk about. You know, I try not to write ideologically, but for years I had this obsession. One day I'm going to write a book about this kind of thing that happened in the schools. You know, it, it it was very bad, you know, and I wanted to write about that. So so there's that part of it. So yeah, in the you know, in the institutions everywhere. But what I love about the and I hope I brought that out in the book in about Jamaica is its capacity for there's no you can't write a victim story about Jamaica. 
you know, you can talk about the suffering and the, you know, the, the, the depredations and the, all the wickedness that was on, but the people full of fight. You know, there's always, as Jean Rhys said, the other side and many other sides. They don't mean two sides. You know, they're going to give you, there's always somehow, I don't know, I guess I, I, I just admire that people. Somehow there is this refusal to lie down and die and they always bring something of their agency. You know, in the in the midst of of this. So even when Aryan dead in, you know, she fighting, she going down fighting, you know, um, and she's speaking her philosophy in the midst of it. You know, yeah, it's it's a weight, the crushing weight of love and dying, not just the crushing weight of dying. You know that she that she stands for. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. I have no idea what I've just said to you, but hope <laughs> it makes some sense. You've said you've said so much. You've said an incredible amount, and it's actually reminding me um, a lot of the work that people like Professor Hilary Beckles and Professor Varian Shepard have done in their reparation activism about um, the lasting effects of slavery, and that it's not just. Um, it, it wasn't just about color and racism and um, it's also about how those things impacted the the dietary um, the, the sorry the diet of um, enslaved people and the generations that came after so things like as you mentioned diabetes um, high blood pressure a lot of that is as a result of the um, the foods that enslaved people had to eat during slavery. But look, so, you get me so excited I just had to cut in and say, yeah, that's it. Yes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, so um, just to, to shift gears only a little, um, but you mentioned the characters on wanting, um, wanting your readers to really feel your characters. And we were so in love with Rachel because we, here at Rebel Women Lit, we are obsessed with the uh, um, women characters in books who defy the, the the stereotype and Rachel is one of those persons because she ensured that her son when she found him that he had a part of her as a part of him in terms of the names and that's not very common here in Jamaica we have a lot of juniors um, here so we wanted to find out from you what the inspiration was for Rachel as a character um, talk to us a little bit about her how what inspired you to write her and how it was writing such a character <laughs> um in, in a nutshell um the, insp- the inspiration for rachel was probably my mother and my aunts um yeah i i, I grew up you know seeing a lot of families with, with full of juniors and the guy the man was the man in charge and so on um my, our household was one of those that was very different. My father was what you'd call the breadwinner. He trusted my mother completely with money. He didn't think that he was so good at it, and he was willing to admit that. And you know, you know, I'm digressing a little bit just to say there's, despite you know, you know, you could say that perhaps a lot of domestic violence in Jamaica is that women don't stay in their place and men don't like it. But there are also a lot of men who. Um, are not bothered as much as we think they are. I remember doing a study in the 1990s, just a sort of informal study, where I, I interviewed 
about 90 people, one third 18 year olds in, in community college doing pre A level. Um, one third were just men and women on the streets. And um, one third was, I can't remember. But the men said, you know, what I found interesting, apart from the young, the 18 year olds, the, all the older people felt men felt that women were smarter, more organized, better with money. It was very interesting. I don't, you know. But anyway, my father would bring home his salary check to his, to, or whatever he earned to my mother. And he expected her to do the, the honors. She worked outside the home, she, you know, and she was a farmer. She would plant. She was the one who planted our food because our father hated anything to do with farming. And my aunts um, all married early, late, and divorced early. And I have an aunt who said, you know, her thing is that for a family now have no man calling. So I've grown up around these really tough women who, you know, are very in touch with themselves. A lot of contradictions, though, you know, this is part of the wonderful paradox, you know, of, of you know, that you can't go in a street like where you're dealing with people in Jamaica because my mother, you know, we played the, you know, my brothers and sisters and I, we played the same games. But it was always us girls who were in charge of whenever we played house because we were the older ones. And uh, it's funny how we, you know, we were in charge. We had the, we were the ones who, how do you put it now, you know, controlled what happened. But we were also telling the guys, you go out and earn the money and bring it back. <laughs> so you get this nice contradiction. You're in charge of the economic thing, but we are in charge, period. Um, so, so I grew up in that way. Um... And that, you know, the, 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 the gender landscape is, you know, is very, very complex. You can't sort of have any sort of one size fits all. I used to tell my students when they would tell me, oh, you know, women are silent. I say, excuse me? I don't know any silent women. They make a lot of noise, you know, that kind of thing. They, they stand up for their rights. A lot of Jamaican women are like that. You you know, you can't just make one map and say, okay, we're all oppressed and we lie down and take it. It's not that. It's more complicated than that. Um, and Rachel is interesting religiously, I think, because um, I hope she is <laughs> at any rate. You know, this is why she cost bad with like English telling about your BC or C and it. Yes. And she prayed to the Lord same way, you know. And you know, she so she, you know, I just, you know, yeah, somebody said to me, Are you going to a couple of people asked me if I'm going to write a sequel or a prequel? And they all want me to write about Rachel. Um she's a she almost took over the book. I had to take out some chapters where she was, you know, riffing on her son. Um, so she's she's a pretty rough, tough character. My 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 aunts always used to descend on the on our home when we were in trouble, fix everything, you know, when, and then just disappear again like a flock of big birds, <laughs> you know. So so yeah, it's it's you know, and and I write, I I try to I write, you know, they say every writer writes what they know well. I, I encourage my creative writing students to do that. Not that you're writing autobiography, but things that you can talk about intimately because you've got authentic detail. And um, it, it's, you know, that that kind of, the, the characters write themselves and they just tell you, I'm coming whether you like me or not. And you want to pull them in a particular direction and they say, no, I ain't going with you. I'm going here and you just have to go with them. And I think what happens a lot with a character like Rachel happened a lot for me is that she just decided where she wanted to go and um, I had to follow behind to learn her. <laughs> um, 
you know, not so much right as learn her and, and respect where she wanted to go. And it, there's a, and I think that happens because the character comes out of a perspective that is deeply rooted in you, how you see things. Um, so the, I always think as you don't even have to start with any ideology because how you see things are gonna, is going to come out anyway. And I think um, Rachel definitely is, you know, she she's not some sort of, you know, rural woman with a washman on her head. She's tough as anything and she's smart and she's, I like Rachel. Yeah, I think we all really liked Rachel. I think there's a line about some choice bumble clots in there that, <laughs> really appreciate it. But Rachel is incredible and I also really admired Ari and her trajectory into politics because we saw when Ari was very young that she was always on one level or the other advocating and that became very natural in her career and even up to the end of the book there is still a lot of Arian being very very much the protector of vulnerable people, of vulnerable groups, and that that's a lot of who she is. And I know that you've done a lot of writing on gender and politics and a lot of how women are represented in the way we write, whether it's in the 20th century, 20th century fiction or in just in books in or politics overall and I was just curious about Arian's character and whether or not that was a deliberate effort for you to write some of the wrongs that or some of the misrepresentations of women in politics and women in our fiction from that century um actually no you know I don't think I I I set out to to write wrongs in that way. I think everybody writes from a different perspective and what happens is that you, all the various perspectives come together to give you a broader map um, and a more complex map so we don't end up, you know, speaking a single story about women's lives. I am not, I, I can't tell you that I actually set out to write this militant woman to prove anything. <laughs> really, if I disappoint you, I'm sorry, but I didn't. No. <laughs> Again, I think that is probably in my DNA. I probably have written so much about that and been upset about so much of when people tell me women are voiceless and that kind of foolishness. You know, I I probably, it is possible that I was there in the back of my mind. I don't know. But she. I think mostly... You know, she chooses her path because of her experiences and her personality, which don't fit into any prescription, really. And I guess that's a gender position I'm taking because I'm saying, you know, that, you know, gender doesn't, is not the one, you know, gender ideologies, roles are not necessarily the, what decides what people become. But I think she, but she, she turned out the way she did. Um maybe because of the logic of her relationship with Moshe. I'm thinking it through as I'm talking to you now because so much comes instinctively when you're writing. I, I think she couldn't have been any other way um, if Moshe was to 
survive at a certain level. I mean, Rachel protects him and so on, but she can go so far no further. She's his mother. She can't be at school with him. Um, there's a way in which she can't enter into the same mental and emotional space, um, you know, that, you know, not that anybody can fully, but there's a way in which Ari can share with him and um, that allows, the, you know, her to 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 be that sort of counterpart and um, she would have to be I think I don't see how she could be any other way this is just the logic of the story I think you know this is a guy who is a kind of what I call a not yet and I don't want to talk too much about him now because I suspect you'll ask me more about him later um, you know he he is so and somebody who is so um, vulnerable and he has to be that vulnerable for to, to, that that central if I have a central message there it's about you know this this vulnerability and our responsibility in the face of that human vulnerability he's got to have a champion of some kind this guy he can't talk he can't you know he he he, he can't fit anywhere he's very very shy he's um you know, he bleeds, you know, he, he needs a champion. And he needs a champion who is going to be also his equal. Um, so I think she just had to, to come out that way. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting how they... I look back on it and I can, if I were write, reading her as a writer, as a reader reading... I'd say, yeah, you know, she, she defies all of these gender boundaries and so on. And um, I, I obviously was conscious of that when I was writing her. But she shaped herself around the necessities of being um, his twin, his helpmeet, and above all, the person who writes him. Uh, yeah. So that they kind of become very complementary to each other. Um, yeah, in ways that I know are very layered and complicated. Yeah. yeah. It was really beautiful just witnessing the softness between the two of them and just how they related to each other. So thank you so much for writing, Moshe. I don't think I've read any any other character who's like him nor have I definitely not read any characters who share the bond that both that they both have so it was really appreciated to see those characters um Christina I know you had another costume yeah uh so in I think one of our more recent podcasts actually the podcast that we were discussing magical realism in we were sort of lamenting about the use of authentic indigenous languages in literature kind of wondering whether we're um biased or selfish or too demanding as readers to want some sort of authentic and i put that in quotes um use of our language in books so uh i wanted to find out for you from you um what your thoughts are on writers writing authentically quote unquote and how does that impact how you approach your work because uh one of the problems that we or well that i've had is sometimes anglicized 
Jamaican words sort of take away from the meaning of the words and how the words are interpreted um, and it maybe it's I don't, I don't know if it's a bad thing to say that um, it sort of feels like sometimes when writers do that they're appeasing American or European writers that way instead of writing to um, Caribbean or Jamaican writers. So talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on writing quote-unquote authentically Jamaican because I think that you do that. I think that the way that you've written Jamaican in this book is perhaps the the most accurate and I use that word very loosely because there are several ways to write patois, but I think you have perhaps written patois in a way that I've never seen written before, and I, and in a way that I personally prefer. Yeah, it's um. Thank you for that question. It is the 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 question or the issue that has been the most um controversial in the reviews I've seen of the book. It got some very good reviews, but also some pretty bad ones. And um, in very, almost invariably, um, the bad ones are about, oh, I can't manage a patwa. Oh, this is hopeless. <laughs> you know, I, I gave up, even though there's not that much um, patwa creole in, in the book at all. It's, you know, you know. But anyway, I just want, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that every writer from our part of the world struggles with. It's as old as our literature itself. Um, and, and I have to, Really say thank you posthumously to people like Samuel Selvon and Vic Reed because I think if they hadn't had the courage to um, try to approximate the Creole languages as a language of narration, not just how the characters speak, many of us might not have had that courage, you know. So they kind of were trailblazers that I really lift my hat to them. I think they did some marvelous things. I look, I, I look at a book like The Lonely Londoners, Samuel's Lonely Londoners, Samuel Serpent's Lonely Londoners, and I'm, I hear Trinidad completely and utterly because it's not just in the choice of words, even though people might say it's anglicized, it's also in the rhythms um, and the cadences. It's Trinidad Carnival and um, God, you know, it's just Trinidad Carnival all the way through and Pecan. And um, it's also in the um, sort of, you know, cultural references. So I think it's deeply authentic. Um, the thing is that as writers, we use um, languages for us also a metaphor. And we, 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 we spin the metaphor in various ways. Um, I don't think any of us can write a Creole narrator or a Jamaican or Trinidadian or any other Caribbean narrator without really, um, with an authentic voice, without capturing something of the rhythms as well as the language itself. We're talking about words and grammar and so on. It's, it's very difficult to do it, you know, and sound authentic. So, um, and what I try to do is, and I'm, I'm, I want to talk about a tall history of sugar in relation to my previous books, because each of them uses the Creole in different ways. 
um, and I, I do various, very conscious variations in Songs of Silence. That one was on the CXC syllabus. I, I use it, and in I use the narrator sort of she she tells the story in English, but with a lot of you know Jamaican intonation. And every now and then, well, not so much every now and then. Sometimes she just glides seamlessly into the Creole, but you don't realize that she's going into Creole until you realize that hey, the the rhythm has shifted and the, the, the grammar has shifted, and you realize that you're being pushed to read it out loud. So on the same sentence, I might start a sentence in English and then move it into, you know, sort of mesolectal Creole, Creole, you know, more sort of, you know, people who have been to school, more tongue talk, a kind of thing. And then I might weave it further into basilectal rural Jamaican Creole. So I do a lot of variations in, in, in a permanent freedom and in ghosts. Some of the narration is actually in different forms of Creole. And we always have to make a choice because um, we're writing, you know, the reality is that we're not just writing for Jamaican write readers, we're also writing for international readers. And and we do have a tendency, um, sadly, in the Caribbean, not to notice books unless somebody abroad picks it up and says this is a great book, <laughs> you know. So it has to be read there. It's it's part of the thing that happened. That's the reality of it. What is also interesting to me is that probably most Jamaicans who speak Creole fluently can't read it because if sometimes I hear people reading, I say, nah, man, I know so it's supposed to be sound. You know, <laughs> I try to give it its oral quality because we, we stumble over it as though it is not a language that we're familiar with. So it's a complicated thing. Um, a Tall History of Sugar is, you know, has a narrator who is obviously very highly educated and she switches a lot. And um, she code switches a lot. And um, between English, you know, the Creole that more educated people speak, the Creole that is open in a deep rural countryside. And what I tried to do very consciously was craft the various layers. So some somebody say, you know, she a come or she come in, but somebody else, and that is S H E, you know, maybe come in. Somebody else might say. In the home, you know, and I have to find a way to do that phonetically. So it was a, you know, and it was actually one of the most um, time-consuming parts of the book when my editor, when my publisher got it and said, "Can you, you can you regularize the Creole?" And he was wonderful. He never said make it sound like English or anything like that. Can you regularize it? And um, what I found myself doing was very consciously deciding which characters would speak a Creole that had more English elements and which characters could not possibly be speaking that and they would have to be speaking what we call raw Jamdong Creole. So I had to find different ways of phoneticizing those in the, in, you know, on the page. So that, that, but it was a very rewarding thing to do. Um, the, the, the other thing I, I want to say is that, um, no, I don't apologize about it at all. Um, I remember teaching grade, it would be grade eight now, a second form boys in at Cornwall College, and they, they were being asked to read Huckleberry Finn in what I, you know, in in 
you know, difficult American vernacular and nobody was translating it or giving them any glossary. When I was in grade eight, I had to do Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Jamaican people grew up on King James, from, you know, in my time, grew up on King James version of the Bible, and nobody was translating it for them. You know, they, in fact, it is so infused, the King James version is so infused in the way we talk, you know, as a result of that. When I had to do Thomas Hardy, the mayor of Casterbridge, you know, all of that, those texts that came over to us in the, in, in the colonial, you know, baggage cart. And I love Mayor of Castlebridge, where the guys, they're talking this real rural, you know, in, English, really, patwa, really. <laughs> you know, nobody was translating it. I admire Juno Diaz, Juno Diaz in, um, you know, in the the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wilde, um, because he, he, he doesn't apologize about using Spanglish and Spanish. I ain't no glossary. Um, so I say, well, you know, if I was asked to do all of that work, I don't think I'm asking my readers to do any less. I have to make a choice between the authenticity of the work and um, and, and the translation. And um, the first book I published, of which I published, um, Songs of Silence, I had to, I was asked to write a glossary and I was not happy about it. Uh, my children's book. Um, Flying with Icarus and other stories, a book I love really. Um, I have two versions of it. One, I had to, I was writing it for an English audience. The, the publisher told me it wouldn't be marketed in the Caribbean. So I, I still managed to keep some of our rhythms. One person complained in a, in a review that, you know, I don't know, I don't know English. <laughs> and, um, but I actually wow. have a Creole, I have a Creole version of that book because as I said, oh, I have to write a version for Caribbean children, which will probably never get read by them, but, I think I have it somewhere on a computer. So it's it's a, it's it's you know language is a, and to go back to Marquez, language is a heart of what we wrestle with in a world where every writer knows that he or she has to write in a language which which um is language is all we have, you know by definition that's what we do we make words make worlds through words and if we're creating a world that we even if it's if it's um even if it's science fiction it's going to be a world that is rooted in our experience that the language has to 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 sing to the reader of a realness but we're also living in a world of unequal politics and a wide readership and we are constantly Straddling these complexities, um, I think that Caribbean writers of as a whole does a fabulous, fabulous job in bridging that gap. Um, one of my most favorite books, I actually taught a whole semester with it as the only literary text, is Marlon James's Book of Night Women. Um, you know, where the story is told in a form of um, you know, Jamaican vernacular, which I think is very, very powerful. And, you know, he metaphorizes it to some extent, but it's, it rings very authentic to me. I, I love what all writers do with um, with the language. Yeah, and if I succeeded in making this, this you know, sound real, I um, also thank my granduncle who died at 91, who told me the most marvelous stories. 
and made me realize how musical, how full of music and literary riches our language. When somebody said to you, I never get the knowledge of it. That is King James Version, you know. But it sounds so wonderful. You, you just want to, you know, you know, I try my endeavor best. Oh God, you want to rise up and testify. I'm starting to think that you listen to that podcast episode that we did because everything that you just said and explained is exactly what we spoke about in that episode. It's a little... But way more articulately. But when you say say it means that we're on the same pace, I'm talking really, you know? I didn't didn't hear the podcast. It's wonderful. (laughs) I just wanted to say I completely appreciate and I'm grateful for that explanation that you just gave, especially regarding the rhythm of our language. I remember someone, um, his name is Javed Jagai, I remember him talking at some point about Patwa, that it's not just words that we speak, but it's a performance and an entire production. There's so much that goes into speaking the language that it's not just words at all so thank you for that hallelujah it's a performance it is marvelous you, you gotta you know that's why you have to hear it you know these are you know a lot of our books are oral books yeah yeah i'm listening and i'm getting goosebumps because i'm just thinking about the impact that well, how I felt reading it. And so many times I was screaming, yes, oh my God, thank you. When I was reading the book, especially the code switching that would happen, that was whether deliberate or it would just happen from the scene with woman by the river to going to school and knowing you can't use that type of language when you're in a school or even understanding that there are different types of pato that would be used in different tones. And some people, because someone for me who grew up in, I guess, a more rural part of Jamaica, but then went to school in a bigger town, the pato was very different. And then moving to Kingston, very different again. So thank you so much for documenting that. Thank you. It, it means so much to me and yeah, I saw the reviews on Goodreads as well, and I knew that made me want to read the book even more and pick it for a book club because whenever pe- Americans, especially, or people who aren't from the Caribbean speak that they can't understand a book because of the language or they don't know Patois, I'm like, okay, I need to check this out because it's probably really good. So thank you so much for doing that. And don't watch the negative reviews about the language. The people who, the people who, I, I imagine the people you wrote it for want they are able to get it and they appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. You don't know how much that that um, blesses me. Um, and just just quickly to say, when you said Americans, it's interesting because there's this contradiction about, um, you know, for a long time I was not able to find a single publisher in the USA who would publish any book that was not that had Creole. It had to be in English. And that does explain a lot of the difference between the writers who publish out of England and the ones who publish out of the USA. The the English were, publishers were always more ready to publish the books with Creole narration or, you know, Creole speech. But, but hear this. The, the most, the most um, generous readers of A Tall History of Sugar 
have been the Americans. This is this, this strange contradiction and you know, paradox is a thing that fascinates me. You know, things are themselves and their own opposite at the same time. And it is more the British readers who have been more negative about it. So it is very interesting how how that pans out, you know. There's always another side to it. But but yes, I, I thank you. I don't apologize and um, I don't let it bother me. I, I tend just to not bother myself too much about reviews anyway. If I, you know, I'm always dissatisfied with my work, always. You know, I, in fact, I never read anything <laughs> I've written. You know, I don't want this written. I don't want to see it. You know, I, I, I go away. I don't want to see you. I, you know, I, I want to see all the holes in it. So they don't need to tell me anything. So, so, I, so I'm my, my own, you know, critic in that. And it doesn't mean that what readers think doesn't matter to me. But I find that if you, you know, if we, you know, one of the, the, the horrible things about right being a writer, your work, you, you know, you don't, you're not a writer until you're published. But if you let reviews this, you know, mess up your head, you know, you could, you could be messed up. <laughs> you could be messed up a lot. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for that. Really appreciate you saying that. Really appreciate you writing this. <laughs> um, I wanted to shift gears just a tiny bit because I know I'm going to think about this a lot if I don't ask. Uh, when it comes to, okay. Firstly, we were arguing in one of the last episodes. How do you pronounce Moshe? Is it Moshe? Moshe? How, how do we pronounce that? I say Moshe. Well, as you write it, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. As a writer, I have this thing in my head, you know, that, you know, characters come and visit you and say, okay, write this story. You know, you, know, so you have to follow back on them a lot. And, um, in, in, you know, you hear the story and you hope you hear it well. I heard Moshe, but a reader is in a different position and may hear something else, <laughs> you know, but, but that's how I pronounce it. That's how I hear him in my head. And of course, Arian calls him Moshe um, for affection. Okay. Yeah, we were arguing about that. So I think Christina won on how to pronounce that. Uh, uh, but one other, well, two other questions. One of them is around consent. It's something that, and sexual violence that's brought up in the book. And for me, it was, it's something that's, it's something that comes up a lot in whenever you're writing about Jamaica, especially if you're going to have characters who are women sexual violence comes up. Um, we see that with Ari and the teachers. And we also see that with Moshe and Alva. But in both instances, I don't think it's really explored as lack of consent or also as abuse of children. And again, that's reflective of just how we deal with those issues here. And I was just wondering again i guess probably more of a literature question about why you chose to write about these issues and the way that you wrote about them um i moshe is sexually ambiguous um and that is part of my deliberate setting out to create a character who is you cannot put any aspect of him in a box um, because I really wanted to interrogate this thing of, okay, nice, neat, you know, 
he's a dundus, night neat. He's gay, night nice neat. He's um he's sexually incapable, that kind of thing. I wanted to, you know, you know, with their as Arian says in her response to to Aristophanes, um, there are as what if there are as many constellations of people as there are stars? I I just tremble to make typologies, <laughs> you know. I, I'm terrified of of doing that. And and he he quest he so he's a question. Moshe is a question. A lot of people have said to me, I, I don't know, I can't visualize him and I said, Okay, great. <laughs> um the the so even how to, to phrase him if you were like doing a movie would be a challenge. I'd like to see what people would do with that. Um but um there's a there's a large sexual landscape and because I'm dealing with Moshe growing up in a place where, you know, as human beings, we tend to, we like to put people in categories, but he's growing up in a place which is more expansive than many. And, you know, oddity is accepted. And if you are odd, you you, you might get it into a category that, you know, the categories keep expanding. There's a way in which Moshe and Arian are like the kind of, you know, the, the extreme aspect of a conclusion if you like of a society which is already itself you know extreme in its in its capacity to absorb um difference but even that society is challenged you know there are limits because of our tendency to put in categories so i want to phrase that you know as a kind of context for talking about the range of sexual behaviors in the book um there is um alva is a different is a different category i think if there's such a word as category alva of course is part of the narrative that expands into what happened to um lance harding on the campus where the, the guys you know attacked him because they suspected that he was gay um but alva um he becomes one of the best friends that moshe could have um the, the 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 difference as you talk about difference in language um between rural jamaica and um the cities i i found my own experience was that it was a similar thing with how people regarded gayness that you know you know you, you grew up in the country and you hear people say oh yeah yeah there's a silence my mama man and nobody will trouble him kind of thing um it was in Kingston that I really saw people being um, uh, sort of attacked in that way. So, so there's more of a, a wider map than the kind of um, narrative that goes abroad um, when people listen to Bujo Banton, you know, and so on. And they behave when they say, oh, Jamaica is very homophobic, but the first time I heard of somebody being killed for being gay was I, it was a U.S. it was in the, in the U.S.A. You know, years ago I read it in the papers. A guy called Shepard or something, a young guy. So it's a it's a you know we like to take the, the single stories and say okay this society is this weird place, but I I think gay people struggle everywhere. Um, although in different ways and in different places and less in, than in other places. Um, the, surely in the U.S. it depends on where you live. 
with all the talk. Um, then you get somebody like Ariane, who is very monastic. <laughs> you know, she waits until marriage and then she nearly chop up the man, <laughs> you know, and she's quite happy to live with Moshe um, in that kind of life um, without sex until perhaps the night before he dies when she says a conflagration come in her loins. Don't ask me what she means by that, by the way. That's a secret she hasn't told me. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, but it's a very wide map. It's a very, you know, people's sexual behaviors and attitudes are as as wide and so as people. I suppose if I have an ideology at all, I would like to say it's a principle. Ideology sounds so horrible is that we there's always another side. If I put a an eraser on the on the table, yes, there is something on the side of the eraser. To one side it's the table, you know, the tabletop, but on the other side there might be a desk. On the other side that might be a flower pot on a on a stand. There's you know, there's this I want you to give some idea, I think, ultimately, of the proliferation of difference. And um, my inevitable sense of terror, <laughs> you know, in the face of it, the terror of, you know, categorizations. And I don't want to make it sound as I'm saying, oh, you know, you must, there are no absolutes. But but I I think that... The absolutes belong to God in a way, and we live on a prism, you know, like Shelley put it, like Percibus Shelley put it, he said that, you know, life like a, a dome of many colored glass stains the white radiance of eternity. I, I'm just, I'm just terrified of playing God. I think our humanity is, is not symmetrical, it's asymmetrical. It is marked by our histories. It is marked by our personalities. It's marked a lot by our pain. But we do have this tremendous capacity of spirit that um, I kind of bow down, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thank you so much. I had highlighted, I think it was a paragraph about the attitude towards homosexuality in rural Jamaica versus Kingston, because that was also something that there's also my reality in terms of moving from Manchester to Kingston and the attitudes and just seeing that stark difference, but recognizing that the stories that travel internationally lack that nuance. And also internally, we don't recognize a lot of this nuance. So thank you again so much for documenting that. Uh, but my last question is about Arian and her being a Taylorite. I think we were all very shocked when we realized that Ari lived on Taylor Hall and not Seacole. What? <laughs> yes. It's <laughs> a different generation. When I, was, when I was at UA, nice girls went to Seacole and nice girls were never militant. They were very ladylike. Really? Oh, Taylor no. is the fall of halls. We never face no less. <laughs> well, I think you just yeah. answered that question no with me. 
difference is Taylor takes first place. <laughs> well, anti-collect have been responsible for a lot of protests happening on campus now, so that is so that hilarious. So I guess in Ari's time that would be it because we're reading it and so many secolettes are well a few secolettes are in book club and they're like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) That that tells me that there's a history of shift that somebody (laughs) should should investigate. There's a there's there's a there's a research paper there. That's there is. <laughs> anyway, I still think Taylor is the Hall of Halls. Sorry. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> well, that answers that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Cardella, for being here with us and agreeing to do this interview. And thank you so much for writing this book. I, For me, it definitely something that has made me want to do more research about our histories or personal histories or shared histories so thank you so much for writing this and sharing it with the world thank you so much randy and christina for having me it has been a delight i am i really do not like interviews i am terrified of them but i really enjoyed this one because it was like coming home Thank you so much, and thank you for this book club. You, you, you know, you're just so innovative, and I, I just wish you everything the best. And I'm going to be chipping in on the travel book um, part, travel, you know, part of the club. Oh wow! Thank you so much. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> I'm so impressed. Thank you so so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, I'm going to end this now and I'm going to go cry right now because that means so much to me. (laughs) (laughs) I just laughed. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. I think that was one of the best interviews I've ever done and I've not done many, so maybe that's not saying much, but it felt like talking to my grandmother even though I don't have a grandmother, but it felt like talking. It felt so homey, so um, warm, so soft, quote unquote, as we love to use, but it was really great. And I just appreciate how smart Cordella is, like just so smart, so intelligent, and how much of her intelligence she brought to the book. So I don't know, man. I was geeking out and I was really trying my best to hold it in and not move anything, but I was geeking out. Something that I really admired was how much she made references to to other writers, to other authors. Yes. Her grandfather, her own family. Her aunt. Her, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. I love when people can honor those that came before them and also she talks about contemporary writers as well such as marlon james yeah and the book of night woman which i still think is his best book you know <laughs> what's hilarious is that when she mentioned marlon james i was like oh my god oh my god but then when she went when she mentioned um book of night woman i'm like okay all right all right <laughs> you're back you're back on track <laughs> Wow, Christina. It's okay for people to like the rest of his book. Of course it is, but it was 
it was preferred <laughs> that that was the book that you mentioned especially because again in that episode that it i don't know i don't know how she managed to talk about everything that we mentioned in that episode but she did um because even the mention of that specific marlon james book we um you mentioned it i think you said it was your favorite of his works so when she mentioned it i was like oh my god she definitely listened to the podcast i'm gonna know how but she definitely listened yeah uh, i don't know it's good to hear these things because sometimes i wonder if because i don't hear a lot of people having these conversations sometimes i wonder if what i'm thinking or what i'm saying makes sense because nobody else is saying these things so whenever you find somebody who makes sense so these things you're like oh okay cool i am i'm not alone with this and especially somebody as brilliant as Cordilla Ford. Really is. fucking brilliant. Like, imagine them affirming <laughs> the thoughts and ideas that you have. Yeah. So like in Patreon today I had posted some of her academic papers that I found I've like since reading this book I've just been searching and scouring the internet for more of her works because she is brilliant and yeah, I, I'm enjoying just how intellectually rich she is. And mm-hmm. I am particularly glad that this episode will be available online because there isn't a lot of, a lot of, I guess, internet documentation of her. So even I was trying to find videos of her reading some of her works and it wasn't available. And then being able to hear her talk about her work and being able to hear her in in a bulkus video read her work. I just think it's so important for us to have these things documented. And I feel so honored that she agreed to do this because she's she's otherworldly brilliant. Yeah, I think this definitely adds another layer um, to her work and to who she is as an author. Um, I've always found that whenever I listen to authors talk about their work, talk about their books, um, and just their writing process and what writing means for them, I always feel closer to the work. Um, It makes me appreciate the work even more because I get to understand what goes into creating it. And having, like, I'm only 30% in the book, but having had this conversation, I'm now, I don't know, I'm eager to just go and finish it right now. I don't think I'll sleep tonight. Yeah, I'm kind of sad that Ashley missed out on this <laughs> interview. Ashley would love her. I think Ashley would have loved being a part of this conversation. Especially when she's talking about Rachel, because I know Ashley's a huge Rachel fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We miss so. you, Ash. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to hear what Ashley has to say about this podcast when it comes out. So, yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. And if you want to support the podcast, the book club, you can become a Patreon member. I think that's one of the easiest ways. Or you can get something from our store or leave a review on Apple if you use Apple or share with your friends who like bookish things or may have really loved reading and haven't gotten into it. Especially like those really good podcasts because this is a really good podcast. This is a really good podcast. And... Um, 
With your help from Patreon, we will be able to afford an audio engineer. Hopefully really soon. So thank you. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Alright. Well, bye guys. <laughs>